0: This sermon was recorded at Highway Palo Alto in Palo Alto, California. If you'd like to find out more about Highway Community, you can head to www.highway.org. Um, this morning, we're going to be continuing our journey through Paul's letter to the Galatians in our series uh, called "Set Free to Live Free." You see our graphic up there, um, and this is a series where we're exploring what it means to be set free by the good news that God loves us and that we can be made right before God through our faith in Christ, the one who was faithful to God's plan of redemption for us and all creation. So we've been going through this letter, and today we're going to continue um, in the passage, and we're going to come to a kind of like confusing and weird little passage. It's one of those passages um, that you sort of read and usually just sort of like, well, I don't really know what that means, and you sort of move on. Um, We're not going to do that. We're actually going to understand it, um, and we're going to spend a bit of time unlocking this. And this is a passage where Paul is going to be reflecting on on an Old Testament story and sort of doing something really clever with it. So we're going to to spend some time unlocking that, and it will help us understand how we can enjoy and keep the freedom Christ has gained for us by his faithfulness to the cross. So before we get there, though, we need to review. We need to get ourselves back into the story or context of the letter. Um, So we're going to do that first. And if you remember the situation that that is happening in the church in Galatia, which caused Paul to write this letter, is that there are some— Whom Paul called the circumcision group, who were saying that Gentile Christians, so these are people who are not Jews, needed to become Jewish first in order to receive the complete benefits of the gospel and fully participate in the church and God's family. You might be asking, how can a Gentile, how can a non Jew become a Jew? And as we've learned before, Gentiles can do this by following the quote unquote law, which meant living ethically. But maybe more importantly for this letter, doing ritual identity markers like eating kosher, performing cleansing rites when you're ritually unclean, and most importantly for males, becoming circumcised, which was a painful and costly right to undergo as an adult male. This was called the, quote, works of the law. That's what that term means. And mo- again, it's mostly about uh, these Jewish identity markers. And why were, these, why were the circumcision group doing this? Why were they teaching this? The reason why is because Abraham, the father of the Jews, in Genesis 12, was given a special promise by God. It's called the threefold promise of Abraham. And that promise was that God would give Abraham land, many children, and that these these offspring would form a great nation that would be blessed by God in order to be a blessing to all nations, all peoples. So the circumcision group argued that in order to receive this promise of blessing, one had to be identified as a child of Abraham, as part of the nation of Israel, in order to inherit this blessing. So one had to become Jewish. And again, you did this by following the law and becoming circumcised. Now, Paul believed this was horribly, horribly wrong. And it was devastating to the gospel to believe this. Why did he think this? Paul believed this because with the arrival of Jesus, the time of the law— which Paul said was a pedagogue or a babysitter, has passed. It's over. It served a purpose, but now it's passed. And through the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, God's plan to redeem the whole creation, all people, was unfolding. And now being made right with God, morally and relationally, comes only through faith, which is a trusting whole life relationship with Jesus and nothing else. So identifying as part of Israel can no longer make you right with God. Only faith in Jesus, the one who is faithful to the cross, can do that. That is the central message of Galatians. And in Galatians 3, um, Paul argued, and he's, and he's going to continue this today, that this was the plan all along. While this may, seem, this may have seemed new to the Jews at the time, this was the plan all along. That the blessing given to Abraham in Genesis 12 was given sheerly by grace not based upon the law or getting circumcised or anything else. And it was always intended from the beginning that the the blessing of God extend beyond Israel to all nations and all people. So to go back to the law was to reject and miss out on the work of Christ and be in opposition to God's original plan to bring blessing, justice, inclusion, and redemption to all people from all nations and to all creation. And this is why for Paul, as he said in Galatians 3.28, There is no Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed. Then you have Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. This is why Paul is shaping the church to be an all-inclusive community, open to all people regardless of categories, race, economic status, or any other identity. This is how the promise of Abraham to be a people who are blessed, to be a blessing, For all nations is fulfilled in Jesus. Because if you are in Christ, you belong to God, no matter who you are, where you come from, or what you've done or not done. So, Paul's message to the Galatians is actually a deeply unifying one where all people and the full diversity of humanity can be unified in Christ through Jesus' shed blood and broken body and faithfulness to his teachings on how to love others well. And this will bring us to our passage today. This is Galatians 4, verse 21 to 31, which is Paul's final example of how the Old Testament supports his case. So this is how he starts it off. He starts it off with a question in verse 21. Tell me, you who want to be under the law, are you not aware of what the law says? So again, he's referring back to what the law actually says. And then he's going to get into this story about Hagar and Sarah and their children in Genesis 16 and 21. And so I want to summarize the story first, because to really understand this passage, you need to know what he's talking about. So let me summarize it first. The story is that Abraham's wife, he was given this promise, Sarah, could not conceive a child. And she eventually grew into old age. And in this culture... Being an old, barren wife was a humiliating position to be in. And given God's great promise to bless Abraham with many children that would form a great nation, the stakes and pressure on Sarah to conceive a child were massive. But it wasn't happening. And in this culture, if your wife couldn't conceive, one of the things that would sometimes happen was that the wife would would or could offer uh, her slave to the husband to produce offspring. Abraham, despite being promised children by God, accepted Sarah's offer. She offered her slave to try it another way, with Hagar, her Egyptian slave. So he did, and he and Hagar gave birth to a child named Ishmael. Ishmael. Later on, God reminded Abraham that he promised him a son. And even though Sarah was barren and 90 years old, she miraculously gave birth to a child named Isaac. Now, Paul is mentioning this story because this is the text the circumcision group would have likely used as their main argument to support their ideas that the Gentiles needed to become circumcised. Why? Because it's in the story in Genesis 16, it's in this chapter that God establishes circumcision specifically as a marker of being Jewish, of being in the line of Abraham. So, this story would be great evidence that being part of God's family and heirs of the promise of the blessing to Abraham is deeply connected to being physically circumcised, marked physically as a child of Abraham and the nation of Israel. But also Paul mentions the story because there's, kind of some, there's some deeply inflammatory undertones here as well, so it's rhetorically strong. These two mothers and sons, Sarah and Hagar, uh, Isaac and Ishmael, had a very bitter relationship with one another. Ishmael mocked Isaac. Sarah then abused and exiled Hagar and her family. These two lines of families did not like each other. Isaac, born of Sarah, would go on to become the line of the Jews and then the nation of Israel till today. Ishmael, born of the Sarah Hagar, would go on to become the line of the Arabs. This brokenness between these two families continues on, of course, till today, where these two sons of Abraham, born of different mothers, Arabs and Jews, continued in their fractured and violent division that plagues the Middle East to this day, dramatically deflecting global politics and the root cause of so much bloody civil and state violence around the world. So this is a deeply painful relationship to bring up. So again, so why is Paul then using this? Why is he using this passage um, to talk about full and unfettered inclusion of the Gentiles into the Christian family of God, accessed by faith in Christ alone, and no longer in Jewish identity? Why would he use this story? It almost seems counterintuitive. But what Paul is doing here, in a fine bit of rhetoric, is turning the argument and interpretation of the circumcision group on its head and against them. They were saying, the circumcision group was saying, that in order for to be a child of Sarah— and receive the blessing given to Abraham's children, one must follow the law and be circumcised and become Jewish, identified as a child of Abraham in the line of Isaac. But Paul is saying, not literally, but figuratively, that by going back to the law, they're actually becoming children of Hagar and excluding themselves from the, God's promise of blessing to Abraham's offspring. Paul is reinterpreting the Old Testament in light of Christ to show that God's plan all along was not to divide people in categories of Jew, Gentile, male, female, rich, poor, or any other division, but rather to unite and reconcile people to God and to each other through faith in Christ. So let's see how he does this. Let's get into the passage. This is verse 22. For it is written that Abraham Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and the other by the free woman. So this is pretty straightforward. Hagar was a slave and Sarah was free. We're going to put this up on a slide in cat- cat- columns so you can see this. So obviously Isaac was a sl- uh, Ishmael was a slave and Isaac was free. So let's move on to verse 23. His son by the slave woman was born according to the flesh, but his son by the free woman was born as a result of divine pro- uh, promise. So let's add that up there to our columns. Okay, so what this means is that Ishmael was born as a result of Abraham's human efforts. Sarah couldn't bear a child, so the natural human solution would be for Abraham to bear a child through another woman, Hagar. This happened naturally and was a product of their human effort and reason. So this is what it means to be born by the flesh. But it wasn't God's plan or promise. Isaac, on the other hand, was born to the elderly long barren Sarah. Isaac wasn't born according to natural human efforts, but rather by divine act, as the text says, because of a divine promise. Isaac was given as a gift of grace only because God had promised it. So there we see the columns continue. Let's continue on to verse 24 to 26. Paul says, These things are being taken figuratively. And this is just a note, not to extend this metaphor too far beyond the point he's trying to make and take it literally. And he continues on. The women represent two covenants. One covenant is from Mount Sinai and bears children who are to be slaves. This is Hagar. Now, Hagar stands for Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present city of Jerusalem because she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem that is above is free, and she is our mother. So let's add this. Let's look at our columns here. So what's going on here, this is where Paul's really making this turn here. Paul then connects Hagar and Ishmael, that line, to Mount Sinai. Why is he doing that? Because Mount Sinai is a reference to the law. That's where the law was given to Moses. And then, make a note, he points out that it's in Arabia, which is outside of the land promised to Israel. He also connects Hagar's line to the present city of Jerusalem, enslaved were their children further connecting them to the circumcision group and what they're trying to do. Sarah, on the other hand, is connected to the Jerusalem above, which implies this true heavenly Jerusalem transcends and extends beyond the physical cities of Israel. This implies that Abraham's true children are not physical Israel, but a new Israel formed in Jesus. Paul's saying in a very clever and almost biting way that the circumcision group are making themselves outsiders, slaves, and disinheriting the promise of blessing like the sons of Hagar. If this wasn't clear, then in this next section, verses 28 to 31, he nails the hammer home. Let's look at this passage. Now you, brothers and sisters, like Isaac, are children of promise. At that time, the son, was, uh, the son born according to flesh— Persecuted the son born by the power of the Spirit. It is the same now. But what does the scripture say? Get rid of the slave woman and her son, for the slave woman's son will never share in the inheritance with a free woman's son. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we are not children of the slave woman, but of the free woman. So what's going on here is Paul's reinterpreting Ishmael's persecution of Isaac to show how the circumcision groups persecution of Paul and uncircumcised Gentiles is further sign that the circumcision group are the ones who are acting outside of the promises of God like Ishmael. They are the ones excluding themselves, and they are the ones making themselves and everyone else who follows them slaves like Hagar instead of being free like Sarah. Now this is pretty tricky what Paul's doing, but it's brilliant. He's just took the circumcision group's best argument and flipped it against them. By, making, by seeking to make Gentile Christians circumcised and make them second-class citizens of the church and by wanting to reemphasize the division and insider-outsider nature of the law between Jews and Gentiles, the circumcision group was in fact excluding themselves from the promises of God and, the, uh, and into the family of God, like Ishmael and Hagar. Instead, Paul wants the Galatian church to know and us to know that there is no longer any need for any restriction or division or categorization that keeps us or anyone from receiving the gift of freedom given by grace by God through faith in Christ. And just as Isaac was born free by a miracle to Sarah, by divine act, we too are free by grace, born into freedom. And how, of course through the heavy price and cost of Jesus' death and sacrifice for us, and the new life that arose with his resurrection out of death and into the new creation. All right, so that's what this passage is about. Now, you might think that's really interesting, but what are we supposed to take away from this passage? We feel we're pretty distant from this problem of wanting to be Jewish or thinking we need to be Jewish. Well, this passage, if we understand it, is actually a cautionary tale for us. It's a cautionary tale. The circumcision group exchanged their new lives in Christ of freedom for the slavery of their past identities, the slavery of seeking validation from the culture. You see, remember, the the circumcision group, these were Christians. These were people who gave their lives to Christ, who believed in Jesus, believed he was the Messiah, believed he was the one bringing the kingdom of God to earth and making all things right. But after a little bit of time, they were starting to believe that faith in Jesus wasn't quite enough. It wasn't good enough. And they reverted back to what used to give them a sense of spiritual self-worth and assurance of God's blessing, which was being physically and ritually Jewish. Why do they do this? Why would you do this? It's because they became insecure. They became insecure in their spiritual, their deep-rooted identity. And what happens when people become insecure? What happens when we become insecure? What do we do? Well, we just revert back to whatever gave us any sense of security before, no matter how good or bad. Or we seek to find whatever our culture tells us will make us secure and validated. Life in the early church was extremely insecure. We kind of don't understand that. But in the early church at this point, it was beginning to experience extreme, or the beginnings of extreme persecution from both the Jews and the Romans. They're getting it from all sides. The early band of uh, of Christians were really disliked or held in high suspicion by almost everyone. The Roman Empire saw Christians as this weird religious offshoot of Judaism that didn't properly give tribute to Caesar, spoke in deeply revolutionary terms, yet they had no army, no weapons, no real power. They instead were strangely welcoming to poor people, widows, and orphans, which to Romans was a deep sign of weakness. And they were rumored to do strange cannibalistic rituals like drinking someone's body and drink, eating someone's blood, which of course is a misunderstanding of communion. The Jews didn't like Christians either. They thought Christians were misguided Jews who believed in a failed and false Messiah. Some Jews actually blamed the Christians for all the bad things that were happening on the nation of Israel and all the Jewish people because they weren't following the Torah very well. They were hanging out with Gentiles, not eating, eating kosher. And so, in a sense, they were scapegoated and pressured to return to following the law. So, this helps explain why the circumcision group felt really insecure amidst this growing persecution. And why they began to lean back, lean back on whatever gave them a sense of security and identity before Christ came. And for them, again, that was being Jewish, following the law. That was the thing that made you right with God. And by doing that, by adding that to the gospel, they forsake Jesus. Because Jesus was a gift of grace, which you could not earn or buy. And that was the only thing that really made them right before God. So the lesson for us to learn here is that we, you know, while we don't need to worry about, we don't worry about being Jewish in order to be a Christian anymore, the lesson to learn is that while we know our value and worth is due to God's great love for us and our relationship with Christ, when we're feeling insecure, when we're feeling a little bit threatened, when we're feeling anxious with life, we do the same thing as the circumcision group. We do the same thing. We fall back on what gave us our ident- identity before we really knew Christ and God's love for us, no matter how good or bad it was. Or we fall back into the way our culture around us tells us we will have value, self worth, identity, or validation. Then we strive for those things. Let me give you a silly, and, and honestly, this is a little bit of an embarrassing personal example. When I got to college, I discovered soccer, which I now love. If you know me, I'm a little bit obsessed with it. When I got out of college, I'd never played before, and I started playing in my early 20s, and I played, and frankly, I was really bad. I was bad. I didn't grow up playing. I had no foot skills. I didn't know what I was doing, but it was fine because I was just learning, and I was beginning. But sometimes, and for those of you who've played sports with, um, you know know that sometimes when you're playing in a game, sometimes, sometimes it doesn't happen. You know, maybe I've done this too, that people, your opponents will talk trash to you when you're not doing so well. They'll make fun of you. They'll teach, they're trying to get in your head. It's just something that happens. And even though I knew it was fine, that I wasn't very good because I was learning, when this happened to me, and hopefully I've matured a little bit since then, I think I have, it would make me really mad. It would make me really mad. The competitive part of myself would just be really mad at this person for telling me I was bad at soccer, even though I was bad at soccer. And in these moments when I was feeling insecure because I wasn't very good at soccer and someone was making fun of me, in my mind, I would do the most silly, petty, and honestly, frankly, it's embarrassing thing. I would look at that person and think to them, if we were in a swimming pool, I could almost drown you. And I'd swim much faster than you. Now, you might be wondering why in the world would I think that while playing soccer? Well, it's because I grew up a swimmer. I swam all my life. I was quite good at it. I played water polo in college. So that's why I could drown people. Um... <laughs> That's sort of something you do in that sport. And this prior success as an athlete in swimming and water polo validated me, that I was a good athlete because I was good at this. And so when I was feeling a little bit insecure because someone was making fun of my lack of soccer playing skills, I would lean back on that prior thing that gave me a sense of self-worth and validation as an athlete. And of course, after the game was over, pathetically, this is pathetic, I find little clever ways to just drop that fact that I played uh, water polo in college and I was a good swimmer, even though I had nothing to do with it, right? Like, I something in me felt the need to do that. Now, that's super silly, but it's what we do. It's what we do. And when we're feeling threatened and insecure, not in our, our athletic identity, but in our spiritual identity, we do the same thing Abraham did by having a child with Hagar, Instead of trusting and having faith in the promises of God, we seek our own human ways of getting what God has already promised us. We simply look back and lean on the things however insufficiently worked in the past, or what we look to the things that society tells us will give us value. We think about where we went to college, or the companies that are on our resume, where we've worked, what we do. Or we look at the security of being in a relationship with somebody, we lean on the security and achievements or cuteness of our kids. or We lean back on how busy we are, either with work or socially. That gives us a sense of self-worth. We're meaningful because we're busy. Or we lean on the things that, uh, being able to do the things that give us status in our culture, like eating well, vacationing well, driving certain cars, or living in certain neighborhoods. Or if we don't have any of those things, we strive for them. We sacrifice everything for them as if our life depended upon it because if they give us our sense of value, it does. And why do we do this? Because they say they will validate us. But there's a deep big problem with this strategy of looking to culture or past successes for your validation. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. We all know in the end The ways of the world and our culture, they don't really actually validate us. And they seek us wanting more, and we keep having to give more and more. Why? Because, as Paul says, these things make us slaves. They make us slaves. These things, these identities that we seek or rely on, they cannot save you. They can't love you because they're slave masters. They're idols. And idols, anything we pursue to give us true meaning, true worth, other than the only thing that can really give you those things, which is God, which is the love of God. Pastor and writer Timothy Keller wrote this about idols. I have this on the screen. Every person, religious or not, is worshiping something idols, pseudo saviors, to get their worth. But these things enslave us with guilt if we fail to attain them, or anger if someone blocks us from them, or fear if they are threatened. Or drivenness, since we must have them. Guilt, anger, fear, and drivenness are like a fire that destroys us. Sin is worshiping anything but Jesus, and the wages of sin is slavery. Paul is trying to remind us not to go back to the slavery of our old identities, of these idols, but instead to live into the promise God gives us in Jesus with the Holy Spirit, which is given to you freely as a gift of grace. He tells us that even when life is insecure, we need to remember who we really are now in Christ. This is what Paul means in verse 31 when he says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, we are not children of the slave woman, but of the free woman. Our true identity is is not as children of slavery, but as children of freedom, children of the loving Father God. You and I have worth through our faith in Christ, and that makes us adopted into the family of God. You and I have worth. We have worth because we are one with Christ. No matter what you've done, who you are, where you come from, or no matter what other people think of you, good or bad, you are a child by grace of God, an heir to the promise of the blessing God gave to Abraham in Genesis 12, blessed to be a blessing to all people. We need to remind ourselves of this. Why? Because our culture and and, and most religions and most worldviews are constantly telling us that there's the ways that we ba- are worthy are based upon what we do, not what God thinks of us, not what Christ does for us. We're worthy based upon what you've accomplished, how good you are at doing things, or how moral you are, what stuff you have. But here Paul is telling us that you and I are worthy based upon only our faith in Christ, what Christ did for us on the cross and can do for us as the risen Savior. And all this happens through our faith, our trusting, whole life relationship with him. So as we finish up here, you might be asking, this is good, but how do we keep ourselves from being like the circumcision group? How do we avoid falling back into the slavery of of the false idols of validation from our culture? The first obvious is just to realize what's going on, just recognize it. But secondly, there's a helpful tool God's given us to remind us that we are free and not slaves. And that tool is Sabbath. Sabbath. Now, I'm not talking about Sabbath in the way we usually talk about it in terms of rest and rejuvenation. I'm not talking about Sabbath as like a spa day. I'm talking about Sabbath as an act of resistance. Sabbath as an act of resistance, almost as protest. Now, what do I mean by this? Think about the things other than Christ that you rely on at times, not all the time, in order to give you a sense of value and self-worth. Think about the things that validate you other than Christ. And then think about the ways to take Sabbath, take breaks away from them for periods of times. Let me give you some examples. This might help. Think about your work, the identity you have in work. If you if, if what you do for work or where you work, what companies you work, what you've done, your success in work is an issue for you, and it probably is for all of us at times. Find a way to take a Sabbath from your work identity. If you find too much pride in where you work, maybe just, just for a month don't wear your company-branded hoodie or self jacket for a while. Or when you meet someone, don't ask what they do for work first. Make it like the 10th question you ask them. Or when someone asks you what you do, don't talk about work first. Talk about something else. Just try it as a Sabbath. Or college. Maybe if where you go or went to college is an identity that you can lean on for self-worth, it's something you're proud of, and can give you a sense of validation. If that's an issue for you and it's not for everybody, maybe... As a Sabbath, remove the alumni sticker from your car or license plate holder, or don't wear your college t-shirt or sweater for a few months. Not forever, I'm not saying you can never do that, but just take a break. to so remind yourself that your value does not come from where you went to college. Social media, okay, this one's probably true for most of us. If you, and let's be honest, this is like almost, you know this can be a part of a problem with social media, you're finding some of your identity in your online social media presence, what your profile looks like, what your feed looks like, take a Sabbath from it. Take a Sabbath from it. So maybe what I mean by that is like next time, next time you're doing, you know, you're eating some incredible meal or have great seats to, you know, whatever uh, sporting event or whatever, you're doing something, something amazing, don't post anything about it. Just enjoy it. Just enjoy it without feeling the need to let other people know That you've done that or have enjoyed that. Now, I'm not saying all the time. I mean, those things are kind of fun to see, but I'm just saying take a Sabbath for it, for a month. Maybe more seriously, if it's easy for you to put a lot of self worth in the identity of being in a dating relationship, consider a Sabbath from dating for three months. Or if you have kids and you take too much identity in the success or whatever from your kids, take a break from identifying in healthy ways with your children. This is a personal one. Take a Sabbath, maybe for two weeks. Of yelling anything at a soccer game. Just don't say anything. I found my kids enjoy it much better when I'm not there yelling for no reason. Or take a Sabbath from talking or posting about your kids' achievements or or even the cute pictures of your kids for maybe a month. I'm not saying never do it, I love seeing the pictures of your cute kids. But maybe if you have too much identity, just take a Sabbath from it. Take a break. Productivity, if you find a lot of self-worth in being someone who gets stuff done, you make stuff happen, you build things, take a Sabbath from that. Pick the longest line at the supermarket next time. <laughs> that happened in the first service too. That this, like, that's the most challenging thing for us. Is to, no, I, I, I thought of that because that's what I do. I think I got to get through here. I got stuff to, you know. But take a Sabbath from it. Add, add two minutes to your grocery shopping time. It's okay. Or obviously, this is an obvious one, don't check your email at home for maybe a couple days or the weekend, or leave your phone in the bag when you go out for a trip on the weekend. You get the point. You get the point. Think about anything other than Christ that you take any of your self-esteem, self-worth from, and just find ways to take a Sabbath from them. Just take a break. Because, and this is going to be different for all of us. We all have different things. Whatever your personal identity, security blanket is other than Christ, just find ways to loosen your grip on those things. So, you can strengthen it on Christ. By taking a break from these things, you are finding, you are creating space to strengthen them, strengthen your identity on Christ. This is what I mean by Sabbath as resistance or as a protest. You are resisting and protesting the power our cultural values have over us. By choosing not to do that, for times, you are resisting them, and instead you have this wonderful space to hold on, to learn to hold on tighter to Christ alone as our source of self-worth and identity. And it's not hard, and we have to practice this. But we need to do this because in Christ alone, we are free. It's only in Christ alone we're free. This is why Paul so angry and worked up about this. He doesn't want these, the Galatians, whom he loves, to trade their freedom for the slavery of finding their worth and inclusion in the law and being circumcised. And we ought not make the same mistakes. We ought not trade our freedom for slavery. We ought not trade being children of the promise for being children of slavery to the idols of our world. This is why Paul says in verse 28, now you, brothers and sisters like Isaac, are children of the promise. I'm going to invite the band up. And what we're going to do now is take communion And then we're going to sing the great hymn, In Christ Alone. And then as we do this, reflect on, in Christ's broken body and blood, which is what the elements of bread and juice represent, we have our identity in Christ. It's through Christ's broken body and blood that we can have our salvation and identity in Christ alone. And then we're going to sing together this great hymn, In Christ Alone, and reflect on how we can know and trust that in Christ alone, we find the core of what makes us worthy, the core of what validates us, that justifies us. Because to live free, as free children of the promise, we live in Christ alone. We cast all else aside. We resist the lies of our culture, and we rest in Christ alone. So let's sing. Let's take communion, and let's sing... Um, and commit our lives and faith together to trust in Christ alone. Let me just say a prayer by reading the first verse of this great song. And then you can, we, we'll take communion and come up um, and then sing after that. In Christ alone, my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song. This cornerstone, this solid ground, firm through the fiercest drought and st- storm. What heights of love, what depths of peace, when fears are stilled. When striving ceased, my comforter, my all in all, here in the love of Christ I stand.